Yo, have you heard of LinkedIn Learning? If you haven't, LinkedIn Learning is an American massive open online course provider. It provides video courses taught by industry experts in a variety of subjects. Now, why am I sharing this? I'm sharing this because Living Corporate is in partnership with LinkedIn Learning to provide diversity, equity, and inclusion courses. Listen, if you're trying to be a better ally, you want to understand better diversity, equity, inclusion strategies, or you just want to learn how to be a better leader, you got to check out the courses on LinkedIn Learning. So check it out. You can do it one of two ways. You can click the link in the show notes or you go to LinkedIn Learning and you search Living Corporate again. Link in the show notes or go to LinkedIn Learning and search Living Corporate. I'll see you over there. Welcome. Welcome to the new group chat, Radical Change with Vonda Page um, on the Living Corporate Network. And today I am super excited and happy to have my new friend and colleague, Cindy Bright, with me today. Welcome, Cindy. How you doing? Hey, Vonda. I'm good. How are you? I am doing great. Not only today are we going to talk about your book, The Color of Courage, Crushing Racism in Corporate America, which is a page turner. It is a it's a it's a burner. Like you just you can't um you can't wait to go from page to page because you're just like, oh my God, what? And you just want to keep on keep on going. So we're going to get um into that probably, you know, in the next maybe 20 minutes or so. But before we um kick off with that, you know, I just want to say um, welcome to the audience, whether you are watching us live here now or going to check out later, uh, check us out later on the replay. So um, I'm your host, Vonda Page. And like I said, this is Radical Change with Vonda Page, the new group chat. And basically, this show is all about driving change, driving measurable and meaningful change. And so what I'm going to be doing, whether it's the special editions like this interview I'm doing here with Cindy today, or whether it's the Saturday edition, I'm always going to be talking to people who are trying to drive radical change, people who are like doing real stuff, people who are being courageous, bold, who are going outside of the box, outside of the norm and getting stuff done. And so um, that's what this um, is about. And so we just want to take it from there. But I just want to start off and just say, you know, Cindy, welcome. And just tell me how you doing. It is a lot happening um, in the world right now. And I know for me personally, um, it's been a struggle, you know, to you know, concentrate sometimes and, you know, to make sure that I'm doing my self-care and taking care of myself. How are you doing with all the drama and everything that is happening right now? You know, I'm so excited to be here with you, Vonda. Um, every time I watch um, other Black women step up and step into their purpose, uh, it's just something about that that gives me chills about supporting my sisters and uh, talking about a lot of the issues we're going to talk about today. I'm actually doing good. I'm I'm actually in the Bay Area this weekend. I'm from Seattle, as you know, uh, but I came down here to escape and uh, get my head together because um, after Labor Day, um, you know, we're going to be headed, you know, I'm politically active, so I have a lot of stuff that um, I'm heading into to swing and fight for uh, with other women. So I'm doing good. I'm happy to be on here with you today. It was, it's my pleasure to 
come in here and talk about this real stuff that you and I, our lives are like, and uh, let's amplify your work, my work. Like we're on a mission to change some stuff. So, because listen, we are. And one of the things, you know, um, about your book, you know, that really hits it is that you talk about um, being on a mission. And for me, and you talk a little bit, you know, even about um, that evolution of, of getting to that point. And I know for me right now, you know, between um, Haiti and Afghanistan and floods on the East Coast and fires on the West Coast. And, you know, as a mom of a, um, you know, young black woman, I've been really struggling over the past, I don't know, maybe two months, really trying to help her navigate this um, maze and this, you know, bumpy, horrible, rough road, right, of being a, a, a young Black woman, being a Black woman here in America. And the thing that's come up recently um, is, you know, so my daughter is a very dark-skinned young woman, and what she's finding and what I'm just really starting to get insight into for the first time in my life is that I um, am more so um, seen as light-skinned, and I'd never realized that. So because you are a light-skinned woman, I want to talk to you about it, but I want to kind of get into this. Um, hey, shout out to Karen. Thanks for, for tuning in. Um, so I want to get into it. So so my experience growing up, um, my mother and three of her sisters are very light-skinned, so like you. So um, my father, who I didn't have a relationship or I think only saw a few times growing up, chocolate dark skin like my daughter my grandfather chocolate dark skin most people in my family um that i grew up around were light like you and so i got called blackie by people in my own family growing up and so it wasn't until i had two first cousins that were younger than i was who were darker skinned that people stopped calling me Blackie. And I don't know if it was because one of them was a boy and you know maybe it was gonna be a more negative thing or something. So I, throughout my entire life, I thought that I was dark, even though I knew I wasn't like dark skinned. And so it never dawned on me that I could be, um, have any privilege, right? Greater than other black women or black people until I started seeing how my daughter is trying to navigate life. And I'm like, well, what the hell is different? She um, goes to college in, in, in California. She grew up in Delaware and then in Portland, Oregon. So she has no accent. So she doesn't even do like a code switch, like how you and I have learned to do that. She doesn't even do that. She literally sounds like a Midwestern person highly educated because she doesn't really have any distinct accent. So she'll call because she's been looking for an apartment. She'll call and, you know, make the appointment. And then she goes and she says, hi. And they're like, and she's like, yeah, it's me. And so as I'm noticing that and noticing other things and how she's treated, I'm like, because there's some challenges that I haven't had. And as I'm helping her and I'm seeing the, how those pieces come together. So I now um, don't have a lot of black women friends because I live in predominantly white spaces. And I have basically for the last 20, 
yeah, since I was like 30. And so um, I want to talk about, you know, how do you think from your perspective that being a light skinned black woman has impacted you? So whether you talk about, you know, growing up right or from college, but but what what does that mean and what does that look like? And, and just share with me something on that. Yeah, there is a lot in your statement. <laughs> There's a lot that us as black women um, contend with. Let me let me acknowledge a couple things up front. Let me acknowledge the fact that I recognize that my light skin in corporate America has given me access. I mean, I rose to the highest ranks of HR in corporate America and my light skin fed into that. I'm not oblivious to that. I'm not um, naive to understand because I have fought for black people my entire life. Now, I see you as a light-skinned woman. So it's funny when I asked you that you thought you were dark-skinned. I don't see you as a dark-skinned woman. So there is just interesting things that I, I'm going to talk about it from two lenses, right? From the white people's lens, um, I have um, gained on the fact that I am considered attractive by this society's standards of what's considered acceptable. I don't see myself that way. You need to know I come from uh, a lot of abuse from my background. And so when you are raised and what's beaten into you is that you're inferior, I've never seen myself uh, as a beautiful black woman. Many people say that to me, I don't see that. I see myself as a black woman. Let me also say that um, my sisters who are dark skinned, I have watched, I have fought for, I have worked to diffuse them feeling secondary to me because I know what their life is like. And I would say that their life and my life are not dissimilar. It's the degree of rejection that we both experience. So I experienced rejection from both black people and white people because I have this mixed skin. And then I experienced rejection. Uh, my strongest rejection has been from white women. I think I do a decent job of allowing black, dark skinned or more dark skinned black women to receive me uh, because of the way that I uh, relate to them. And so I recognize that that's something I have to deal with at the onset. And so, you know, the colorism stuff is real, Vonda. No one who has any level of melanin in their skin has escaped this, the fact that our skin is not pink and white. Mm -hmm. And so um, even though they will spend uh, billions of dollars a year to tan and to put makeup on and to put Botox in their lips to look like us, they still don't accept us. And so I'm not naive in that. And so I receive, you know, you when you reached out to me and then when I talked to you and you were like, you consider yourself dark skin. I'm like, Jesus, my father was dark skin. My father was jet black. And so I don't see you as a dark skin woman, but I know you deal with the same stuff. And I'll say stuff because we're on air. You deal with the same stuff that I deal with. It's just to the degree that we deal with it. And my stuff has been no joke. So I can't even fathom being totally black. Like I'm mixed, 
totally black women deal with so much more stuff than mm -hmm. I deal with. Facts. Yeah, I mean, and that is facts. And it's so funny because now that I'm an adult, I mean, I would say now for the last 20 years, at some point I figured out, right, that I'm not dark skinned in the scope of people, even though, like I said, my father, my grandfather, there's women in my family that was dark. My The babysitter I had growing up whose grandmother was a slave, by the way, right? She was chocolate dark like my daughter. And I always had um, Cindy this affinity towards dark chocolate people, towards being black. Like I always wanted to be like as black as possible. Like, like I had this thing like, like I, and maybe it was because I sensed internal, you know, anti-blackness in my really light-skinned relatives. Maybe that's why I wanted to be more like black and dark because maybe I thought that that being darker skin or being considered dark would make me like stronger and or something. So I just always had this thing and I've always admired dark chocolate, dark-skinned women, especially like if they have a really um like an ethnic black sounding name. Like I like I always wanted that. Like I always wanted to be as black as possible. And I think it's so interesting because now, right, as I'm doing so much more of this work, and you know when you do the anti-racism work, you 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 delve into yourself, right? And you start figuring yourself out and you're like, and so for me now, right, at 52 to be learning like where my um thoughts right and and behaviors and concepts come from right around colorism and color and how i think about myself and other people it's so fascinating and so when you, you know, then you know what Martha? you know what's interesting about what you're saying um the most of the world doesn't know and i've started speaking more openly about it but during at uh, the end of 2019, 2020, I had battled breast cancer. And when I was in that process of uh, getting my health back, one of the things I did was uh, the 23andMe.com mm -hmm. because genetics play a huge part. And even though there's no breast cancer in my family, which is a whole nother issue all in itself about black women's health. Um, but what was fascinating when I got the results back is I am way more white than I am black. My, you know, my mother is German. Um, my, the statistics around my DNA were like 60.4% French and German. My grandfather, who my mother never knew. Um, so I come, I'm more European, <laughs> but the fact that my skin has a few shades darker than my mom has, uh, has propelled me into the world as a black woman. And I, I identify as black. Um, and I think that comes from, if, if you, I don't know if you've listened to my TED talk. I have a TED talk. That yes. Out, I, I talk about when I find out, when I come home and I tell my mom that I've seen a Negro today and she says, honey, you are a Negro. And I'm like, no, I'm not. Like to find, to have to deal with America's standards of race and where I belong in this world and the way that I'm treated in this world it doesn't matter that I'm technically more white than black. The world has treated me because I don't have pale white skin. The world has treated me accordingly. Mm -hmm. And so it's the same issue you're talking about with yourself and with our dark skin. All of my relatives are all dark, my, my father's side. So, you know, and my son, who, by the way, my son 
shows white. My, you would never know my son has, is black because I'm half white and his father is white. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. he identifies as black. So it is fascinating. It is fascinating. And it goes <laughs> to show the whole thing around race being a construct because you can identify however you want. So when I did my DNA, I mm -hmm. the first time I did it, you know how they update it because they get more information or whatever. The first time I did it, I was, you ready for this? 87% Nigerian. And I was pissed that I wasn't darker. I'm like, well, then why am I not dark? I want to be African black, like in my mind, but, right? But genetics skip generations. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So exactly. It's so important to talk about is because our children, like I've said to my son, right? Because your daughter is dark. What I've said to my son is because he shows white, but he married a brown woman. And so my daughter-in-law, is a mixture of Japanese and Filipino. And so, I, you know, I'm out in these streets fighting all this racism stuff. And they, I think on one hand, they're proud of me. And on the other hand, they're like, Jesus, we don't know how to deal with our mom. But I've said to them, you watch because the statistics will, your kids, because you're, you look white to my son and you've married a dark woman, your kids, your gonna be kids are going to look like my father. And yes. So, right. And so when, my, when your children are born, and your children have the dark, dark skin, and you are a privilege of a light skin, mom. Watch, I said, I'm handing this damn baton to you because when you are in your 40s and people treat you like they treat us because you have a child that's dark, this is real talk, Vonda. It I is. Real talk. <laughs> so your daughter and my grandkids are gonna fight the same battle if we don't address racism in corporate america which is what my book was about so you you're right and so and how deep is this so so i have over the years my skin has gotten lighter because when i look at pictures of myself right and it's so funny my best friend um from philly she sent me an old box of pictures that she had at her house and it was a picture of my daughter when my daughter was three right and when my daughter was three she and I look the same. If I look at pictures of myself, we're the same skin tone. But when my daughter was born, right now, I got to show you. Keep going. When when she was born, she her she was so light skinned She looked white. She had jet black straight hair, right? And I was looking at the baby and looking at the doctors like, why is she white? Why does she look white? Like I couldn't even understand. And the doctor, look at this. this yeah. is my Stanford. Look at how yeah, white. Yeah, 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 right? yeah, yeah. And yeah. so no one knew. They would see this crazy black woman in the stands when my son. I know that story is hilarious, and you cussing out the damn, the damn uh, refs <laughs> and shit. That's that is hilarious. That's hilarious. That's how I was. Hey, Maureen. That's how I was too. Right. So I get it. But it's so interesting um, that people don't understand until your point right about how genetics you know that goes around like my mom is super light-skinned my grandmother is was my my complexion right um there's people in my family that look white i remember when my daughter was little before she knew anything about black white or whatever she had um uh somebody at school say something to her but she thought in, in a nutshell, that my mother was white. 
and she was like three or four. So, you know, she doesn't know nothing. I haven't explained to her you're black and this is the difference or whatever. And and she said something to my mom about being white and my aunt, other aunt being white and my other aunt. And I thought it was so cute because I said, oh, it just goes to show, right? Kids don't know anything about race or racism until you teach them. My mother, Cindy, flipped out. Well, why did you teach her? Why does she think I'm white and this and that? I'm like, she's three. Literally, this is how old she was. How would somebody this little understand race as a construct, especially if she's in predominantly white spaces, right? And we have friends of different backgrounds. So to your point about, you know, how genetics works, right? And how to think about, you know, all of this stuff going forward. If we don't do something now and all we can, what we can do, right? Raise our voices, give people plans and action steps, but literally, to your point um, in the book, white people have to solve racism. So, I mean, let's talk about how, first of all, did you get the courage to even write a book like this? Because these experiences that you share, just like I've read, you know, other books by brilliant black woman, women, these experiences, we all have them. But a lot of us, right, don't take that step to say, I'm going to jump in, I'm going to write about it, share the experience and take it to another level. So, you know, just start there with it. How did you, you know, say, you know what, I got to do this and I have to write this book and then I have to not only do that, but continue to deepen my activism because it's not like you haven't been active in this space because you have been for a long time. I'm taking a deep breath there. I know it's a lot. Yeah, the truth about the truth about my book is this. So, for your listeners that are listening, um, my book is told. It is written in a novel style, so it is not written from an academic perspective on racism. It's not written from a historical perspective. It's written by telling one of a zillion stories about what went down with me when I was publicly fired in 2012. I was a head of HR, so I had. Uh, risen to high ranks in corporate America in a financial services firm. It has to do with my, who was then my friend, a white woman who was having an affair with the CFO of the company. And so the two white people basically got protected and the black woman who was trying to actually help my friend uh, became their scapegoat. And it ended up in a nasty employment trial. I'm going to answer your question here in a second. Every white person in this company, the lowest amount of money that this company wrote to them was a quarter of a million dollars, including my friend. I remember the judge in my trial was like WTF, like why is Miss Bright? I mean, it was very clear it was racism, but what? here's what happened and why I wrote the book. My, my verdict, I won the trial. I won, my award was to get my wages back for two years. Uh, it was roughly a half a million dollars and to get my attorney fees paid, which was seven figures to get them paid. my To this day, my verdict is still considered the second largest employment verdict in the state of Washington. But when you win a verdict of a half a million dollars, which is wages, and you pay half of it to taxes, and then you try to get, your life has been destroyed by the stroke of a pen of a white woman who puts her voice forward, and they take her side and protect her and her man. I knew, I will tell you completely, when the verdict came in, um, I was picking up my son from the airport and my attorney texted me and told me we won. 
and here's the amount. And I remember saying, is that all? I then texted my therapist at that moment and I said, here's, here's what went down. She's a white woman who helped me tremendously. And she said to me in a text message, your work is not over, Cindy. Because let's, let's just be real. If, the, if the, that trial would have happened in today's world, in the Donald Trump world, I'd be retired. And my black behind would be laying on a beach someplace, not caring about anything else because I've paid my dues with corporate America. But God knew more. <laughs> and those of us who are based in faith know that there was something more at play here. And so my courage to write this book, I started this book in 2014 after the trial. And the book was basically, I don't remember how many pages, but it was full of rage, swear words, and pain over what these people put me through. And the fact that a white woman who was the problem walked away retired, wealthy, and married. And the black woman who was trying to do the right thing lost her home, her money, like everything to be able to um, fight for the rights of other people. Now we're in 2021. I have no regrets about the fact that, you know, I have spent a lot of time and in prayer, in church, um, in community to go, this message was meant to get out into our world about what is really happening to black women. And so here I am today to say, I sat down in the pandemic, I had breast cancer. I think you saw that in the book. I had to face my mortality and the things that were coming up to me were, if I'm gonna die God now, which I'm not, it's in remission, but God wanted my voice out there for us. And so I unapologetically speak out about what is really happening and I tell it through stories, not through lectures. I'm not trying to preach to people and I'm not trying to teach them about history. I highlighted the characters and I want every person who reads this book to ask themselves this question. Am I any of these characters in this book or do I know somebody who's a character in this book? Because 100% every black woman will see this story and if white women have the courage to face what's really happening, they will see themselves in this book too. So that's a five minute answer to your question about how did I decide to do this and why did I find the guts to just put it out there? But it's five minutes of gold. I'm gonna just tell you like that. Not, so it doesn't even matter. Um, this is a snip, like I'm writing it like, so because I mean, it, and Karen even said it in, this, in the chat, right? It's like this, this has to stop. This has to stop. And the only way that it is going to stop, right, is we have to talk about it, to your point, right? We have to find the courage to be brave, to be vocal. Um, when I had um, uh, Angel Henry on, right, the first week and the, the second weeks, right, um, to talk about her book, Dense in the Ceiling, she said the same thing that you're saying is that we have to talk about it. Right. And black women have to share our stories. But the thing is that the white women, those women who work in HR, those women who work in uh, legal and employee relations and have all of those jobs. Right. They need to be doing things differently. One of the notes that I wrote down um, 
here was, you know, um, how racism in corporate America, it really seems that HR is the hotbed of it. And so I want to HR. talk to you yeah. because you are HR professional, how many years, but I want you to share a little bit about just HR as an industry, right? As a discipline, how that has evolved to now is just how do HR professionals keep companies from getting sued by employees, right? So what my book calls for you, I spent three decades as HR. Let me, you're going to think right now that you are in church when you hear me talk about this. Let's bring it. HR is the fundamental freaking problem in corporate America. And I call for the destruction and demolishment of that function. Let me say a couple things about this. Uh, Number one, black women are only getting functional roles. And what I mean by functional roles is HR, legal, finance, marketing. They, the corporate America does not see us as profit and loss people, the business side of it. So many of us get on these back office jobs um, that are paid a fraction of what P&L responsibility uh, uh, garners. And then we get into these 99.7% white HR departments who are these minions, and I believe I use the term minions in my book, who only want to enforce rules and power. They have no interest in helping people. And HR as a function should be a function that advocates for For people. people and finds the equitable lane of business and people. I said this on a podcast yesterday. I'm not anti-business. I'm anti-exploiting Black women for profitability. And we don't get to share in this profitability of any of these organizations. Now, these HR departments are full of uneducated. That's going to get me in a hotbed to say it. No, it's not. Uneducated, you know, power hungry, first time in their life that they can actually have a real job. Yeah, I said that. And then what they do is they spend their time destroying the black people. They fight. My book talks all about the last chapter is about compensation, the systems that are at play. And the fact that I didn't bend over and let these white women in HR control. I'm hired as a business HR director. And what they were trying to force me to do is push their freaking paperwork and push people into you know, 60% to market jobs and threw in my face in my trial the fact they said I was abusing my authority because I gave a black person a significant increase. I gave them a significant increase at the approval of the CFO and the CEO. The CFO, who was the one in the affair, approved this because the black people were the ones that were so lowly paid. And the fact that I was fixing access for women and black people and then the white women whose pay i fixed showed up on the stand and testified against me even though i put hundreds of thousands of money in their pocket they give zero um i'm trying to not say what just came to my mind but they don't care about us they only care about getting what they want to get and then they move on and they testify to destroy us human resources functions what i call for is the destruction of those functions and I call for business to stand up black and brown businesses that solve these business problems, outsource 
the freaking transactional stuff. Anybody can push payroll. Anybody can push benefit stuff. That doesn't require education or skill. But get black women and black people who understand economics, money, and progress, and let us help businesses solve these problems. That yep. is my call for action. And we're going to do it. And I'm with you. And that is what's going to happen. Because the thing is, I mean, you said so much there. I mean, I, I have chills. I've been in church, like, since we started talking. <laughs> I've been in church. And you said so much. Because that's the thing, right? Is that, first of all, these hard truths, these words that you and I are sharing together, that we are spitting out here into the universe have not been talked about with the people who need to hear the conversation, right? So, because if you were to have this conversation at an employer, somebody that's paying you a check, um, and you're going to talk about, you know, um, demolishing HR and how HR, you know, um, should be at that intersection of people and business, you know, working together. People would throw you out the room. They would be like, what are you talking about? Because nobody is trying to hear it. Right. And so that's why forums like this have to bring and your book to the. And to because the of this, Vonda, because we are speaking out, we are paying the price for it, even as self-employed people. We Absolutely. Absolutely. I lose, um, who, Cynthia just commented about gatekeepers. Cynthia, please buy this book and read about the gatekeepers, because not only is it corporate America, it's the political world, too. So I aim I'm on both sides of that equation. And we can talk more about that because they're both interwoven and we need change in public policy and we on the gatekeepers and we need change in corporate America. These folks until because um, look, I will say this as a black woman out here, Amy. Um, to change this trajectory. I'm a black woman who's got an executive MBA. I'm a black woman who's done a TED talk. I'm a black woman who has a business. I'm a black woman who does all these things. But because I'm doing that, the white employers only want to hire the white women who want to subcontract and get my knowledge so that they can get paid. This is the shit. And so I'm saying that loud and clear. They want to use our stories and our knowledge. The Robin D'Angelo's, my book talks about. They want to use us to profit off of us, to fix the very problem we've been out here speaking about for I don't know how many freaking years, but yep. they don't want to hear us because when they hear me, listen to how I talk. Right. I'm 57 years old. I'm passionate. I'm right. tired of dancing on freaking eggshells to talk right. about it. You either get real with yourself or not. You right. Get real or not. And that's how I am, too. And so what I've learned is that what that does is it frees you up from a lot of stuff. Right. Because you you are very clear. Right. On your mission um, of what you're trying to do. I'm very clear on my mission and I'm also clear on what I'm good at. Right. And um, Precious L. Williams, who is um, the pitch master. She's one of my coaches. I have a lot of coaches um, and she's one of them. And one thing she has a, a term that she used and she calls it your zone of genius. Right. And I don't consider my zone of genius um, being an anti-racism educator because I really don't have the patience, um, you know, to uh, to like educate people on things that literally they can educate themselves on. But I'm more of an I'm an activist, but I consider my zone of genius being a change leadership 
right? Expert, right? I'm leading change leadership. And so for me, you're doing a little bit more in that space than I am, uh, Vonda. I would, you know, I would, I know you and Karen are doing that interracial sisterhood. And I called you a couple of days ago about that because my heart is torn over it, right? My heart is torn over the fact that my sisters are trying to do this work and I'm trying to help my sisters and I'm exhausted at the same time. And I don't know how much, it's like, how much can we do? And so um, because I'm only, you know, a month out or a month and a half out of releasing the book, I'm like, for now, buy the book. (laughs) And let me use that as a method to help women. I'm not saying I'm not going to join you guys. I just am mentally taxed over how much work. This is what people don't understand is the black tax, right? The black tax of what it costs us to be to do this work um, in our personal lives, in our professional lives, every juncture I turn, I've got to educate white folks on stuff to me that is so basic. And that's why and I so- don't do that part of it. So for me, right, and even like with the with the our um the interracial sisterhood um is is the effort right that you're talking about. It, it's not going to be about educating. It's more around people will have to already have done a good deal of homework. You know what I mean? To really um, be a- effective in that space. Right. Um, and people have to be open and accountable. So back to, you know, it all fits together. Right. With the whole way we think about HR, the whole way we think about, you know, crushing or dismantling racism. And it's really around for those people who do have the power. Right. Those white women in HR, especially and those white women in other parts of the organization who have um, that proximity, right, to uh, those in power that they contribute, continue to support. So, you know, when you were talking about those uh, white women who had the opportunity to benefit, right, from the work you did, just like white women have benefited from the EEOC, you know, creation and all of those other um, laws, right, it, it really boils down to when they have the power and opportunity to do something different, right? To speak up or to take an action that's going to do it, are they actually going to do it? So one of the let's things talk, that let's talk about, let's talk about that. Yeah. Because one of the what the way that I met you was through the interracial sisterhood work, right? The meeting that Karen Fleshman, who by the way, talk about badass white women. I'm, I'm she's the one. That. I'm having dinner with her tonight. I'm in San Francisco. That woman is my sister. Uh, Karen Fleshman set up this meeting. And to give you the Cliff Notes version, there was a white woman who um, just did not understand any of this. And so I happened to be with her in a subgroup and it became so painful to me. I was like WTF many of the women of color in that meeting were private messaging me and saying, thank you, Cindy, you know, all that. But I ended up setting up other meetings because that white woman, um, after that meeting with Karen, I Googled who this woman was. And when I seen what this woman does and the power and influence that she has in the Silicon Valley in the space that we're talking about and was not, she just did not have the acumen that's necessary to be in that space. And so, you know, I have a couple free meetings with them because she tells me that she wants to talk to me about this. And then the long story short is I pitch business to her and she says, yeah, we, let's do this. And then 
I meet the C and as soon as they find out my fee, they say, I'm sorry, we don't have the money to do it. And so that is 100% white women are predominantly perform. It's a performative exercise. Mm -hmm. If they understand and believe this, then they, and I look in that particular company, I Googled them and I saw the venture capital money that just got put behind them, which is umpteen million dollars. The fact that they find my fee unreasonable and when they are funded is strictly about, I don't see your worth. I'm not going to put that kind of money behind you. I'm not used to seeing women like you make that kind of money. You want to take my expertise. You want to take my pain. You want to take my education and you want to profit off of it. But you have no intentions of paying me to help you. That shit is real. And it goes on with many black women that I talk to. We all look business school 101 teaches that supply and demand dictates higher fees. The market. We that's right. Supply and demand. We are in supply and demand right now. There is not enough of us that have been in these corporations that can speak to it. And there's certainly not. I don't know who my competitor is as a head of HR in corporate America in financial services. There's not one other person who can compete with me in my knowledge. And yet that that should garner me if white men were doing this and McKinsey company, McKinsey is the consulting firm that pays millions of dollars mm -hmm. for young white boys to come in and use our pain and they are profitable. And women like me are out here fighting in the fucking streets to get paid minimal money yep. to talk about these issues. That shit is real. Really? It is. And it has got to change. And the thing is, and this is why, you know, I was super excited, you know, when um, I uh, talked to Zach Nunn, right, the CEO um, of Living Corporate, like, this is what I want to do. And this is what I would want to talk about. And he was like, do it. Because literally, if we don't say these things, right, if we don't talk about it, then it stays in it stays in the dark, right? It stays in there. And when we think about the people, right, who are in those positions of power and influence who can do something about it, those are the people who have to hear it. So we got to get in front of people. So if that means, you know, doing, you know, podcasts and interviews but and articles, that's a thing, beginning of it. Here's the thing. Like, you know, I had our earlier meeting today. Um, cause I would, I was on a podcast yesterday for indivisible Washington, which is the, I'm from Seattle for those of you who don't know. Um, and I'm very politically active and this was a political podcast. And I talked about a lot of public policy and the BS that goes on in the political world too, and how black people are getting left behind. They asked me what's next for me. And I, I can't answer the question, you know, post publishing this book, because for women like us who are fierce, fearless, and willing to stand up. I don't know, like we deserve to make a living too, but we're not being paid. We're not being hired and we're not being paid appropriately to make a living. And so that is the white supremacist cultures that are pervasive everywhere is that they want us to go away because they know that we can't do shit without getting money. And so, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but you and me and Karen and all of these other women who are out here fighting for the injustices. We're fighting against the patriarchy taking away women's rights. We are fighting against chapter two in my book, the 10 commandments of the GOB, you know, 
uh, please thy white man. Like we're out here fighting that. How do we get paid too? How mm -hmm. do we fight for the rights of other people? And we're not politicians and we're not owned by corporate interests. We're out here in the streets trying to make sure that the rest of us, that our children, your daughter, my son, Karen's children, all the people we know, our children should not have to inherit this fucking mess. Like, how do we right. deal with that? Right. I mean, we, we it's, it's, it's going to number one, it's going to take a lot of people crossing their comfort zones. Right. And because one of the things and I, I think so you're just a couple of years older than me. I'm 52. I think one thing that has been a. Um, uh, um, uh, what do you call it? A uh, a condition of kind of like where we are is black women have this thing where we either are told to be strong or we feel we have to be strong or and it's between like this strength and resilience thing, right? And 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 it's like why do we have to be strong? Because what is the alternative, right, of being strong? <laughs> What's the alternative of fighting? Like I am not going to be able to rest my head comfortably, right? If I know that I'm still worried about my daughter getting a police called on her for nothing, right? So she's in her dorm room. Um, and you know, this whole thing with these uh, two white girls who were moving in, they told my daughter that they were in the same room and they wanted her to move to a different room. Well, my daughter had been there a week already. The other girl had been there two weeks. She like, I'm not moving. Well, little did we not know that the rooms were assigned. So it was the two white girls are supposed to be in the same room. They knew each other. Well, instead of them explaining that to my daughter, they called the campus police on her. Of course now, they did. Now, instead, so, so until that's not a, a possibility anymore, I can't be, I can't stop. Right. Until I don't have to worry about not just my kid who's only going to be in college for two and a half more years. But how about right. My guy kids. Right. Um, my my friends, kids. How about anybody's kids? Right. Yeah. Any child that has any pigment in their skin or a different shaped eyes or an accent that some white person doesn't find. I'll just call it acceptable because I don't know what else to call it. And they decide to do that. So we can't we have to be strong because what is the, the upside, the other side of it? Right. And when I think here's about. The, here's the thing. People don't seem to understand that strength is the result of pain. So even when you think about it, literally, and if you're in the gym, you don't get stronger by showing up in makeup and high heel shoes, you get stronger by sweating, by pumping iron, but like strength is the result of pain. So when every white person looks at white black women, I mean, strong is the number one thing, a word attached to me too. Does that give you any indication about the fricking road I've traveled to be, to be this outspoken and to be this unapologetic? Do you understand where this is coming from? And that's issue number one. And issue number two is why do we as black women have to constantly deal with um, this uh, developing more muscle? I, I said, look, I'm not, this is not BS. When I was in chemo in in 2019, early 2020, I said to God, I can't take any more. Like, please let this be the final bout of bullshit I have to deal with 
so that I can propel myself into the world to deal, to help our people, our people, and including these white folks who are destroying us, you are also a child of God, whether you understand that or not. So why can't we as women, why can't we as women work together collectively for the good of all of us? We are being, our rights are being taken away from us. The signature, uh, or excuse me, the sanctuary cities are all under attack. We women are all under attack right now. Can we come together and start fighting this bullshit of trying to destroy us? We are not dissimilar or different. We have melanin and we have no melanin. Let us fight together to change outcomes for every woman, for every woman, period. Does it sound period. like church? Period. This period. is church, but period for everything. Like I just, for every word, I want to clap in between every single word because what you are saying is the 100% truth. And that's the piece that is so like, when I think about, you know, um, and I, cause I don't want to keep talking about the book cause I want people to buy it. But when I think about, you know, we, when we talk about strength being the other side and the result of pain and you think about the pain that is inflicted and i have this thing where i i you know how they say pet peeves but i guess it's stronger than a pet peeve i actually hate when people try to use intentions and try to excuse intention over the impact right so it's like oh i didn't mean to be racist or i didn't mean to be sexist or i didn't mean to be so they this intention thing over impact and the thing is right the way that we are going to you know um get to that point right what you're talking about is coming together is those white women who don't get it at all they have to decide are they going to put their own mask on right before they continue to put the mask on capitalistic patriarchy? Are they going to at least take care of themselves first? Because if they at least looked out for their own interests, right? The election of 2016 would have went different. And a lot of they, other things would have went different. But they don't even they look out for their own interests because they still get screwed. Because even to your point in your book. Taliban, the American Taliban is the white man. Yes, it is. And so let's just be clear about this, it is. that. The white women who think that they're upholding those white men and thinking that they're going to have access to power, these Taliban white men, Texas, the shit that's going on in there, that is the beginning. L let's pay attention, people, to it's past the beginning. We are they are taking down the sanctuary cities. I'm here. You guys have here in San Francisco ten days before we find out if the governor is recalled and the attorney general. Those fuckers are coming out after us yep. and for every white woman who does not understand she is not gaining because she's trying to line up with them because she thinks that she has access to power and money let's talk about the census data and the fact that it is the browning of america and most brown and black people did not participate in that census because they don't want to be targeted so let us let it be known that america is browner and blacker and you can't undo us and you will not genocide us. 
Women like us are not going away. Nope. We are equipping this next generation. Yep. We are making sure our children have the intel that they need. We are fighting the systems that need to be fought. We are marching in Washington. We are doing everything we need to do to make sure your children do not suffer the way right. we have suffered. Period. 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 And we are. And and we not. And I have chills because I'm just I'm just like every I was telling Karen um, Fleshman the other day, all these like old Negro spirituals coming back to me. Right. <laughs> when you talking and I'm just like, we ain't tired now. Like, you know, like like okay. I'm just not going to be tired. Like I'm going to there is no there is no rest. Right. Um, because we're not going to see, you know, everything get better in the next 50 years. Right. But. But the results of that, right, your son, my daughter, Karen's kids, other people's children, other generations, right, not only in our country, but around the world, if more people do what we're doing, more people find their um, inner um, courageousness, right, more people feel uh, more confident about using their own voice, right, then, the, then, then we can do it. But literally, people have to wake up. So if you take the whole uh, California recall situation, I mean... I mean, people literally are asleep. They don't understand the impact of that. They don't understand um, Larry Elder and what his plans are. They, they oh are clueless, and they don't know who... You have another hour? Do you have another hour? Look, like, they, these the people are clueless. And so that's why the work of continually helping people understand, continually creating awareness, continually engaging with people, that's why this is this has to happen, right? And people will I, hear you know, it. Fonda, I would say this, you know, that um, I tried, you know, my book had so many edits to it because I tried everything in my power to be respectful about how I wrote it. Um, I did have in the initial draft, you know, the fact that white women will do anything for a dick or a dollar. And then I toned it down and said men are money. But let's just be clear about a couple things, right? The money aspect of it, like we all need money. So we have to live. This is how our economy, this is how we live. Capitalism. It's, it's the relationship with money that I'm calling into question with people. And so, mm -hmm. you know, the podcast I was on yesterday, I'm like, I, I you know, look, I live in Seattle where Amazon's moving out of Seattle uh, and they're moving into Bellevue. I'm not an anti-business person, but I'm like, you know, when they move into the town I'm in and they're paying twelve fifty an hour and, uh, and and we've been fighting for 15 years for $15 an hour and studies have shown that it takes $32 an hour to be able to afford to live there. We're, we're just so, our relationship with money is so skewed. And so the white people who believe that they have to have every damn dollar for everything you know, God bless you for thinking that that's going to bring you happiness. I get, I do need a new car. I would like some new living arrangements. But when God blesses me, because he will, I'm going to make sure I pour that into other people. Because I want to make sure, you know, black women are raised to serve our community, to serve each other. So if we could just change our relationship with money, I think it will begin to change how people think about upholding the patriarchy. So that's number one. You know, number two, at the end of the day, all of us wants the same thing. We want, we want love. We want acceptance. We want to belong. We want to be able to live and take care of our families. And we want the same thing that these greedy ass white folks want. 
except that we're unwilling to sell out our sisters, other people. We're unwilling to do that for the sake of a dollar. And I, I can't tell you how many people, I got some coaching in my mid-career that a black man actually said to me, you know, Cindy, if you used, you know, I mean, I, I feel like I used to be a hot chick in my 30s. And he was like, if you use what you had, you could make tons of money. And I, when he, when he said that to me, I literally felt raped at the moment. I was like, who the fuck does that? Like, why would I do that? Like, why can't I earn money on my merit and what my education and all the things? All I'm saying here, you know, kind of one of my last messages are, we are better together. And if we can't find a way to change our relationship to men and money, let's, let's be real about some of these men. Let's be real about them. These old white guys that are in their 60s and 70s, they can't look. I, I got something in my nightstand that can outperform any one of them. So if you think that you're, gonna get it, <laughs> I mean, they ain't got nothing to offer me. Right. And so look, we have to get real about this stuff. Right? Am I wrong? You know, yeah, they, they think that this is like a big deal. And these men are going to end up treating them the same way they have every other woman in their life. So stop being fooled to believe that they're going to actually do something for you to change your life. They are only about controlling your life. And you know what? You're, you're right. You're right. And, and the whole thing that keeps that I cannot get out of my mind and it hasn't gotten out of my mind since, um, the day before the Texas, you know, uh, the whole Texas uh, thing, right. Is handmaid's tale. And I remember when the show came out, was it on Netflix or Hulu? Whenever I, I remember um, I knew about the book and I remember thinking, I don't even want to read that because I could imagine that happening. Right. So then when the when the series came out, I was like, oh, I'm not watching that. And then some person in my life, I don't know, were like, you should really watch it. And I said, no, because it's going to make me mad. Right. And it's going to it's, it's 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 emotional. So when I think about those women, right, um, in Handmaid's Tale, right? So it's the rich women, right, married to the husbands, and then it's all the poor women, right? And even in the, in the, to watch the rich women, right, let their husbands rape the poor women and all this other stuff happening, right? But then they still get treated like garbage and they still treat those other women like garbage. Instead of once it happens, uh, the switch never, the, I always say the flip, the switch doesn't flip. The flip, the switch doesn't flip for them. And they don't say, oh, shoot. It's me too. I am them, but they got me believing that if I side they, with them, but but the truth is they're going to treat me the same way. But the difference is not, what they don't understand yet is lineage and you know, one of the woo-woo terms is karma, but what they don't understand is is that they're creating a cycle of harm for their own family. That's right. So, I think you and I know me you know, I come from a lineage of abuse Me too. and I have a white mom. And so, but it stopped with me. Yep. Me and too. So I, you change the trajectory. And for the women who don't understand, if you don't have the courage, my book, The Color of Courage, if you don't have the courage to stand in the truth and change outcomes for your family, when you change outcomes for your family and other young women, other people of color, 
Your life and your family life can only become better. When you stay in the space of harm and destruction, do you remember the movie, The Family That Prays, P-R-E-Y? Oh, yeah, yeah, Tyler Perry. So when, remember when Alfred Woodard, I use this uh, regularly, when she was talking, her daughter was Sinane Lathan, and she said, where did I go wrong with you? Mm. She's like, honey, you cannot find good on creating pain to somebody else. Mm -hmm. That is my message to the audience. Say it again. You cannot prosper. You cannot have good in your life when you create harm in other people's life. It's just not the law of the universe. You can call it energy. You can call it karma. You can call it faith. What you put into the world, the seeds you sow in this world will truly come to harvest. So for those women who are continuing to plant seeds of hatred and greed, the only thing you are going to receive in your lineage, it may not even be in your lifetime, in your lineage, you are going to reap the, the seeds that you sow. And so have the courage to do the right thing, even if it costs you in the short term. Because in the long term, the longer game is for the love of all people. And we can all prosper if we put aside greed, selfishness, entitlement, and look at each other as we are our sister's keeper. Period. Mm. Listen, I'm going to drop it right there because there is nothing else left to say cindy um just thank you so much i'm so honored that we met and i'm looking forward to deepening and growing our friendship i'm looking forward to continuing to support your work for us doing more things together and look i'm with you so i'm just want to tell the audience you know those of you who joined live thank you so much those who want to check it out later um i popped two links in the chat one is directly to um amazon um to order cindy's book the color of courage crushing racism in corporate america i am your host vonda page this is um radical change with vonda page new group chat um, on Living Corporate, and I will see you on Saturday. Thanks again, Cindy. Love you, Vonda. Thank you. You too. Okay. Bye.